Does anyone here read books anymore? Read novels? <laughs> really? Good for you. <laughs> it's really a dying art, isn't it? With the digital world, the 80-inch screen TVs people have these days and their, their phones, it, it seems to be a dying art. And here's the thing. There is something to be said for engaging with your imagination as you read, to being absorbed into the setting, to see how the character develops throughout the story, to catch the intentional nuances and hooks that an author will put into the story for you to, to see, the literary devices that he uses to actually move you along in that engagement, and, and finally, just to be swept away in the development of a, a good plot, and the twists and turns that happen. You're trying to anticipate them at all times, and quite often you're not able to. Now, that doesn't mean that things are bad. When, when it comes to the Bible, we need to remember that there are large sections that are actually written as narrative. This was an oral culture, and the truths that were handed down are handed down in a story format for a particular purpose. So because they are literary format uh, is structured, they actually have a lot of things that you would have studied in high school as part of your literature or English classes. They, they use a, a wide range of literary devices that become really important to understanding the basic meaning of the story itself. Now, that doesn't mean that they're fanciful. It doesn't mean that they're, they're created up, that, that they're not uh, true. They are part of God's true and infallible word of God. It just means that they're written in such a way to engage our minds with God's truth. And they use this wide range of things like plot development, word usage, comedy, satire. You name it, you'll find it in the Word of God. I mean, you just have to read Daniel. This is not a dry history, is it? We're going to see some of the most extraordinary stories laid before us. And we're asked to engage with our hearts, with our minds, that uh, this applies to us. Now, one of the challenges of teaching and preaching the Word of God, especially when it comes to the Old Testament and, and uh, narrative, is that we need to actually guard what we call these literary units. Uh, they make up sections of Scripture. And now, when I say literary unit, I'm not talking about a, a particular scene, like you flash from one thing to another. When I say a literary unit, I, I'm saying that there is a, a section of Scripture that has one idea, one main truth that the author is piecing together in this wonderful, vivid story that, that's a cliffhanger for us. Now, what often happens if we don't respect those boundaries, those literary units, we can actually look at a story, break it up, and, and take it out of its context and, and apply all kinds of things and yet never get to the truth of what God is trying to say. And we can actually even miss what God is trying to say. So as we come to Daniel chapter 2 this morning, <laughs> we have to recognize that all of chapter 2, all 49 verses are actually one literary unit, one story. And it's to be taken as one. Now, there's lots of moving scenes. There's lots of different parts but there is one storyline, there is one 
purpose behind all of this. So to get to an understanding of what this means, we have to sometimes engage in those literary devices, those things that the author places there for us, so that we can actually capture the fullness of the meaning of what's going on. And so that once we've captured it, we actually live out that truth as God has called us to do. Now, having said all of that, we're actually going to split chapter two into two sermons this week. <laughs> Mostly because of time, trying to deal with 49 sermons, or sorry, 49 verses and, and give all of the information. I could probably preach for an hour and a half, but I don't think you'd want me to. <laughs> Um, so we're going to divide chapter 2 into two sections. The first one this morning are the first 23 verses, and the second, right after Easter, we'll look at verses 24 through 49. But here's the thing. We're going to stay true and honest to the literary unit, and we're going to say we're, we're going to have one purpose, one idea, one big idea for the sermon for both of these services, okay? Because if, if it really only has one purpose, then that purpose should be the same for both sermons. Now, this is a bit of a teaching moment that you won't necessarily get all the time, and I, I want us to capture the idea that as you engage with narrative, especially Hebrew narrative of the Old Testament, we should recognize that there are markers that are in the text to tell us the flow so I want us to just give us an understanding, and this, this is what chapter 2, it should be like. And, and as we're learning this, we should naturally be thinking, oh, this is what's going on. So there's, there's always a setting, and that is what we see in chapter 2, verse 1a. And then there is that one incident that, that brings a crisis, right? that starts the movement upwards. And in this case, the king says, well, tell me my dream. And, and no one can do that. And then the story escalates in passion, in power, in movement, and character development until it gets to a climax. And then eventually that climax will come to a resolution. In chapter 2, uh, Daniel, that resolution is the king praises God. And then there is the outcome, the king promotes Daniel and his friends. So that's just kind of a, a, a diagram to keep in your mind. So as you move forward, whenever you engage stories or narratives in the Old Testament, that there is a purpose behind this, and this is what's happening. But what we're going to do is we're going to basically cha divide chapter 2 right down the middle, right to the middle of that climax, and look at the first part. And this is going to be the, the, the purpose statement or the big idea for the next two weeks as we look at Daniel. Yahweh is the sovereign God of heaven, and as the one who deposes and sets up kings, he will one day establish his own heavenly kingdom. So that is for both weeks. But I'm going to contend that this week, in the first 23 verses, that first phrase, that first part, is what's in, 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 in our, our headlights this morning. That Yahweh is the sovereign God of heaven. That's the thrust of the first part. And then the second part picks up the, the rest of the sentence and goes on, okay? So that is the purpose statement this morning. Now, life in Babylon as a conquered people, it was hard, <laughs> but it wasn't all bad. In fact, by the time Israel was allowed to leave and encouraged by God to leave 70 years later, most of them didn't want to go back to the promised land. They had grown accustomed to life in Babylon. They had set down roots. They had prospered. 
Yes, being conquered and being dragged away from your homeland, it, it was tough. Starting over with nothing was an unimaginably hard. But the reason why God had given them over to the Babylonians and sent them off into captivity was because they had abandoned their covenant responsibilities to God. And, and very specifically, especially, their exclusive worship of God, of Yahweh, the covenant maker. You see, for decades, there had been this growing syncretism in the life of God's people, where the worship of Yahweh was not only mixed with the worship of other gods, but it eventually became overshadowed or eclipsed by the worship of other gods. And we have a quote in Jeremiah 7, verses 17 and 18, that really tells us what life was like. So, get this. Do you not see that they are doing in the city, what they're doing in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood and the fathers kindle fire and the women knead dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. And they pour out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger. So there's other gods and that, that queen of, uh, of heaven, that is Ishtar or Inani, uh, uh, goddess of uh, uh, the Assyrians. God says, look at your life. You're supposed to be my people, and so much that is part of your daily life, it has nothing to do with me. You're actually worshiping false gods. And while there is a remnant of faithful people, Daniel and his friends included, the vast majority of God's people have already given themselves over to the worship of the Babylonian gods, to the Assyrian gods, even before they're taken away into exile. The promised land was one of the key defining aspects of God's covenant with his people. He made that covenant with Abraham. This land, it was a territory over which he was to rule in righteousness. A kingdom that was defined by and based on his mercy. A kingdom where his righteousness was to guide the lives of the people in every aspect of daily life. It was a kingdom where his just rulership was on display in contrast to all of the other kingdoms of the earth. <coughs> but now Israel has been banished from the promised land. And the underlying question of chapter 2 is this contrast of two kingdoms. And the acute question is, who is the undisputed God of heaven? That's at the center of everything. Now, in verses <clears throat> 1 through 13, we read how this great king Nebuchadnezzar has been unable to sleep because he's got a bad dream. And there's actually something in the grammar here in the original language that tells us this was not just a one-off, this was a reoccurring uh, dream that he had had. Now, in two weeks, when we look at the second part, we're going to see that it's not simply a dream, it's more of a nightmare. <laughs> because it strikes at the very heart of Nebuchadnezzar's authority, what it means that he's a king, and, and what he wants to do to Babylon in making this the great goat, the, the greatest of all times empire that's ever been. Now, I, I don't know when you had your last nightmare. <laughs> 
I remember one that reoccurred to me in my teens regularly. I don't think it was something that is just me, but I, I remember in the middle of the night, I, I find myself on a roller coaster, and I'd be going all of a sudden downhill. I'd be going faster and faster and faster, and all of a sudden, there was no track. I was just plummeting to my death. I remember waking up sweating. I couldn't breathe properly. My heart was racing. I was scared stiff. Well, here's the most powerful king in the world, and he's waking up on a regular basis with a nightmare, night after night after night. So he summons all of the, the great wise men of his day, everyone that, that he thinks is, is, is able to tap into the gods to tell him. So he gets the magicians, the sorcerers, the enchanters, the astrologers, and he demands, not only do they tell him what the meaning of the dream is, he says, you know what, you've got to tell me what the dream is. And they say, well, well, wait a minute, you tell us what the dream is and we'll interpret it for you. But he insists, not once, not twice, but three times. And if they can answer him, there's going to be great wealth, there's going to be riches, but if they can't, what's going to happen? Them and their families are going to be killed. Now, it seems that he, doesn't that he doesn't trust them. Verse 9 very specifically says that he's, he, he said, you're stalling for time here. Tell me what I need to know. Um, but you know what? It's also very easy for uh, these wise men to take even the worst of, of predilections, the worst of prophecies, and turn them and spin them for good so that they would gain the favor of a king instead of, uh, of being beheaded or something. So here's the reality is that he says, no, you've got to tell me what the dream is as well as the interpretation. And so the thing is, <clears throat> if we think, as we're going to see in two weeks, that he actually has even the slightest hint of what this dream is about, and I think he does, this is not something that's coming out of the blue. God is speaking to him in a dream about something that he should recognize, if he even has a hint of that, then the only way of knowing whether it's going to come true or not is to actually have someone tell him what the dream is. <laughs> he says, he knows in his heart there's something drastic coming. So instead of me telling you what it is and you giving me a great spin on it, no, you have to actually tell me what my dream is. And just as we expect, there's not a wise man that he knows uh, that he gathers together that is able to actually tell him what the dream is, let alone interpret it. And this brings us to a, a, a problem, a, a theological, spiritual problem that we see in the text. And, and every Hebrew narrative has one. There is a theological crux, and that we see in verse 11, when they, they, the wise men respond back and said, the thing that the king asks is difficult. No one can show it to the king, except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Who's able to tell the king what the dream is, let alone what given an accurate interpretation of it? Well, only the one who has given it. Only one who doesn't live among men who lives in heaven. And part of what scares him is he has no idea who this God is. 
You see, for several years before he became king, Nebuchadnezzar was actually the high priest of the goddess of Ishtar, that goddess that was just referred to. We looked at in Jeremiah 7. And he served in the greatest of temples in the city of Ukuk, just a couple kilometers away. She was the goddess of war and sexuality amongst the Syrians and Babylonians. And then when his father, Nabopolassar, actually passed away and he becomes king, he becomes the, the king of the most powerful nation in the world. But on top of that, he becomes the personal representative of the most powerful god of the Babylonian pantheon, and that is Marduk. So now he becomes king. He was a high priest of Ishtar. Now he is a personal representative of the most powerful god in, in the kingdom of Babylon. And by default, by the right of conquer, now the most powerful god on earth, supposedly. Marduk was the patron saint of Babylon. He was the creator of heaven and earth and the co-creator of all people. He was not only the god of war, not only the god of healing, but was the god of magic. And who does the king bring in to help solve his problem? The greatest of magicians. As the top god amongst gods, Marduk was to rule in justice and compassion. And the Babylonians believed he did that because right in the center of the city was this huge temple, the most important temple to Marduk and on the, all of the empire. And so there was Marduk, and they believed that he actually resided in the temple amongst them. Can you start to see the picture that's being drawn for us? The advisors are right. No one who dwells on earth is able to do what the king asks. For all of their skill, all of their talents in divination and magic, the wise men have no idea what the dream is and can't interpret it. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't know. He's the personal representative of the most powerful god, supposedly on earth, the god of magic, and he has no clue what's going on. And Marduk himself, this great god of magic, the creator of heaven, well, he lived among them. His reign didn't extend into the heavens. So what's portrayed for us in these opening 13 verses is the utter failure of political kingdoms, the, the utter uselessness of world religious systems. This world has an appearance of power, has an appearance of authority, yet it is bankrupt to even solve the basic question of what is my dream. Help me understand. Nebuchadnezzar, who's to rule? He's to rule in peace. He's to rule in compassion. He's to rule in justice. He's a king who becomes distraught. He's unhinged. He depends on the sorcerers and the magicians to tell him the future. And when they can't satisfy him, he flies into a fit of rage. And he, t he says, not only are you going to be killed, but you're going to be torn limb from limb. And your families, your houses are going to be destroyed. It was easy to find life in Babylon comfortable. But Babylon was not a safe place for God's people. It was not a place that they were to get comfortable in. 
It was not a place where they would find mercy and justice, even though there was a king who was supposed to rule that way. It was a place that was the antithesis of the goodness of God and his rulership. Now, during our time in Daniel, we're actually going to see that, that uh, God is going to lead a remnant of his people through the exile and out the other end. In fact, he is going to promise to create a great spiritual kingdom that will have no end. And here's the thing. For those who are in Babylon, they needed to have a faith in him that was set in hope. Their faith better not be in the gods of the Babylonians. Their trust must not be in the mercy of this great king, Nebuchadnezzar. They would need to walk by faith, endure the trials of living in exile by faith, and worship God alone exclusively, even though there wasn't a sacrificial system that would allow them to come into God's presence. And this is where what we see in Daniel and his friends in verses 4 through 23. When Daniel hears that, that there, you know, all the wise men are being rounded up, they're going to be killed, Arioch, who's the, the person in charge, he goes to him, and Daniel shows great restraint. As opposed to the king, <laughs> it says that he was actually very patient, um, prudent, and showed great respect. Now, I'm sure that he was worried. There's nothing in Scripture that says he, that he wasn't. And, and I'm, I'm not bringing something in here, but the reality is the king, a sovereign lord over an empire, has made a decree that they should all be killed. This was something usually irrevocable. This was the problem in the story of Esther. Once a king makes that kind of commitment, it cannot be changed. But here's the thing. It was his faith that was sustaining him through that challenge. Yes, I'm sure that he was stressing somewhat, but it was his faith that allowed that stress to be maintained and eventually rested on God. How do I know? Well, instead of becoming distraught, instead of becoming inconsolate that he's about to be rounded up, just like everyone else, and he's about to be killed, we read that he's prudent. We read that he shows great respect. When he asks, what's so urgent about the king's command here? When Ariok tells him what the trial is, what the trouble is, he decides he's going to go to the king, and he goes humbly to a king. He approaches the king, and he asks for a little bit of time to be able to discern what the, the dream is. And when the king grants him that time, he goes to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and he asks them to pray for understanding. This is where the spiritual plot thickens for us. Because there's now a contrast of, of divine power and authority being set up for us against the, the, the power and the authority of Nebuchadnezzar and the gods of Babylon. Who is able to reveal the dream and its meaning? The king stumped. He, he's not sleeping at night. The magicians and the wise men, for all of their understanding, for all of their magic, they can't help. And Marduk, this, this compassionate great god of magic, 
He's silent. He's not saying anything. But who do Daniel and his friends turn to? The God of heaven. Elohim, the infinite, all-powerful God, creator, sustainer, and the supreme judge of all of the earth. And even more, look what it says. It says, God of heaven, Elohim of heaven, the God who not only created heaven, but the one who resides and rules from heaven. That's why when God reveals to Daniel and his friends what the dream is, Daniel breaks out and prays and says, blessed be the name of the Lord for, for, uh, forever and ever. This is not some powerless God like Marduk. He is the almighty God of heaven. He is the one who is sovereign over all creation, who changes the seasons, who, who makes kings to, to rise up and to fall down again. He himself is perfect wisdom and understanding and power. He is the revealer of mysterious things because they are his to reveal. He is light. In him there is no shadow of darkness, no deception, no unrighteousness. And unlike Nebuchadnezzar and unlike Marduk in the opening 13 verses, Daniel's God of heaven rules justly and with compassion. Even outside of the promised land, even outside of the political barriers that God had set up, this is my covenant to you. And, and he proves it by answering Daniel and his friend's prayer. This is the undisputed God of heaven. He is more powerful than anybody else. There, none ha, are, are rivals. Everything else is simply smoke and mirrors. He is truly the God of heaven. But let's take a step back for a second. What is it exactly that they pray for? What do they seek to God from God? Well, we might want to jump and say, well, they're asking what the dream is, right? What's the dream? Give us the interpretation. Not quite. Verse 18 says what? Daniel tells his friends to seek the mercy of God concerning the mystery. The word mercy here is important. It's not just a Hebrew word. It's actually an Aramaic word that's, uh, that's brought in here. But uh, because it, it reveals their heart, it reveals their heart as they go in prayer before an all-knowing, all-powerful, holy God. Now, in the Bible, when, God's, uh, when, when, when the Bible speaks of God's mercy, it's talking about his compassion, that he is sympathetic towards others. When, when he looks down upon us, he sees us in our fallen state, and his desire is to do something about that. That's his mercy. And, and that's a fundamental characteristic of God. That's part of his very divine nature. Now, in Israel's history, there is one incident above everything else. It's head and shoulders above everything else that actually focuses and shows us what the mercy of God is. And that's in Exodus 32 to 34. I don't know if you remember, God has brought the nation of Israel out of slavery from Egypt. He leads them into the desert where he is about to establish his covenant with Moses. But while Moses is on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments, the people are what? 
They're down at the bottom of the mountain worshiping this new golden calf that they've just made. And that's when Moses smashes the Ten Commandments. Now, after God brings judgment for that evil, Moses intercedes on behalf of the people and says, show me your glory. A a, a simple petition. And what is God's response? I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And, And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Now, God's glory is connected to his desire to show mercy. Let's just tuck that away for a second. We'll come back. These words, though, that we've just read here, with these words, God then renews his covenant with his people. And he gives Moses a second copy of the Ten Commandments. And that becomes the foundation for the Mosaic Covenant. Was Israel deserving of God's favor and mercy? God is about to bless them beyond their wildest means, and they're down worshiping a golden calf. And yet, after judgment, or let's say his judgment is tempered by looking down and having pity upon them. And in his pity, he demonstrates his loving kindness, his mercy, by committing himself to establishing that covenant of relationship with them. This is what Daniel and his friends were praying for. That the God who was judging his people for their sin by taking them into exile would show them his glory by being merciful to them, by being compassionate to them. As sovereign God, he did not he wasn't obliged to do anything, was he? He didn't have to show them anything, let alone uh, what the interpretation was. They weren't deserving of any compassion. They were under judgment. And yet in their meekness and their humility, they sought the mercy of God in prayer. This is a critical idea we we have to get down. It was so important for the remnant, the faithful people, those who truly followed Yahweh, even through the exile, they needed to hold on to this. We need to hold on to this. It is put on display for them and for us in Daniel and his friends. Those who are faithful are those who seek the mercy of God because they desire to see the glory of God, even in the trials and situations that they find themselves in. God's mercy had always been the basis for their relationship with him. And it was their only sure hope as they looked forward, moving forward, that God would again, sometime, somehow, some way, be merciful to them one day and establish that covenant relationship which was now on the shelf because now they were in Babylon and not in the promised land. We often read Lamentations 3, verses 22 and 23 as as personal promises of God Uh, 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 blessings for our daily life and that's fine but in the original context it was so much more it was the hope of a people a hope uh, of a a, a people who were faithful to god in the face of of insurmountable odds and uncertainty in exile the steadfast love of the lord never ceases his mercies never come to an end They are new every morning. 
Great is your faithfulness. And here it is. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Do you see the connection between the hope and the steadfast love that God displays in his mercies? The prophet Jeremiah wrote these words of lamentations at virtually the same time as we're reading this narrative, this story of Daniel chapter 2. They were going on at the same time. And it shows us that even in the exile, the heartbeat of God's people, those who were truly God's people, was for the mercy of God to lead them forward. There was no temple, no place where God could be said to dwell amongst them. There was no sacrificial system that would allow them to approach God. But their hope was in the steadfast love of God, that one day he would be merciful to them. He will show compassion. So throughout the Old Testament, this is a fundamental, this is a, a building block of the gospel of the Old Testament. The basis of the hope of God's people is the mercy of God. So it shouldn't surprise us as we come to the New Testament that it's also the building block of our covenant relationship with God as well. The mercy of God is the basis for our relationship, our covenantal relationship with Christ. During the exile, the later prophets, the people like Jeremiah and Ezekiel, proclaimed that God would one day come, that he will relent He would show mercy. He would show pity upon his people. And he would establish again a covenant with them. I'm going to encourage you to turn to Jeremiah 31. I don't have it on the overhead here because it's too big of a section of scripture. It'd be so small. Uh, Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. If you're using the Bible from the ushers, it's on page 426. Jeremiah 31, verse 31 and following. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them up out of the land to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This is the foundational promise of the Old Testament, that God would again show mercy. And these are the very words that the author picks up in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 16, to to proclaim that the new covenant has now been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has established this new covenantal relationship because he is the perfect once-for-all sacrifice for sin and because he is the perfect sinless priest over the household of God. But the question we need to ask ourselves is, what motivated God to establish this relationship? What motivated God to establish the new covenant? Titus 3.5, he saved us not on the basis of needs which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, 
by the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit. 1 Peter 1.3, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has called us to be born again of a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What moved God to establish a new covenant in Jesus Christ's blood is that he looked upon us in our fallen, broken, sinful state, and he had compassion. We didn't deserve it, but he was merciful to us. And the very words that the Apostle Paul uses in Romans 9.15 to actually quote that God is sovereign, to he, he is so sovereign he will show mercy, he will save whomever he desires, he, he quotes Exodus 34 that we looked at a minute ago. He says, remember what Moses, uh, God said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have, uh, I have compassion, so that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. The basis of hope is the mercy of God in the Old Testament and the New. Now, I was worrying this morning that throwing out so many scriptures more than I often do, you might get to the point where you can't see the forest because of the trees. Here's the skinny. <laughs> While we can say that, according to Matthew 5, 45, that there is a way in which God's interactions with all people everywhere, saved or unsaved, just or unjust, are done on a, a, because of his pro, a providential care. He shows mercy to all people. There is a special covenant relationship that God establishes between himself and with those on whom he sets his love. On those who know that particular love of God, they know and experience the mercies of God in their life. They come to understand and desire to live by faith. They know the mercies of God, that it is forgiveness of sin that we have for Christ. They know that it is new life that we have in Christ. And it is to the glory of God that he has even shown us this mercy. It's the same principle from Old to New Testament. Daniel and his men, his friends, were, were men of such faith. Their faith was set upon the God of heaven, the only true God who sovereignly rules over all creation, all kings, including Nebuchadnezzar, all kingdoms, including Babylon, all gods on the earth, including Marduk and Ishtar. Their hope was in the mercy that God would one day show them that he would have compassion. He would look down upon them. And, and he's demonstrated that time and time in the history of God's people. So they had verifiable evidence that says God has been merciful and compassionate in the past. And, and as we submit ourselves by faith, he will at some point show his glory in, in mercy. I don't know if they truly expected God to, to reveal the, the fullness of the dream and, and the intention. It doesn't matter. They were seeking the glory of God. And whatever God revealed was his mercy. They understood that their exile, their time in Babylon was because of sin. And instead of adopting the Babylonian culture, adopting the Babylonian worldview and saying this is now ours, they were remaining steadfastly loyal to Yahweh because they believed that one day he would be merciful 
and he would relent and bring them out of captivity. Their response to the crisis of, of Nebuchadnezzar's dream is, is really the, res, the response that any of us can have, the only appropriate response that we can have to a crisis, and that is to humbly seek the mercy of God. And when they did, God answered their prayer powerfully, didn't he? Now, as Christians, our situation is similar to Daniel. It's not the same, but there's similarities and there's parallels. We live in a world that is hostile to God, that is very dangerous. We need to be cautious how close we chum up to it because there is always something there, someone that is, is desiring to deflate us and to, to take away our faith. It is a world that is not our home. It is a world filled with false gods, a world that offers all kinds of great and wonderful wealth and promise. It is a world that is full of capricious leaders who change their minds from one person from one time to the next, who are supposed to lead in mercy and justice, and yet mercy and justice are rare commodities. How often do you hear in the news someone asking simply that justice would be done, and it never is? The reality is, in this world, sooner or later, we are going to be faced with a trial, a temptation, with a challenge that is going to test our faith. Our resolve, our, our desire to stick to God and God alone. Now, I'm pretty sure, you can come back to me in a couple of years, but I'm pretty sure none of us is going to be summoned before a king and be asked to reveal what a dream means. But you know what? There's going to be other challenges Maybe you'll find yourself under the pressure to lie to keep your job. Maybe something will happen and, and there will be pressure to, to cover up a crime. Maybe you'll be called to go to war. I'm not a warmonger, but you look at what's going on in the world today and it's not that far off. The generation that actually gets constricted and goes to war never thinks that it's them. These are the moments in which our faith in the God of heaven must stand firm. We must commit ourselves to him and, and not to the gods, not to the wealth, not to the powers, the aspirations that this world has to offer. And the question is, when that time comes, will you seek the mercy and the glory of God. And when he answers, even if it's not the answer you want, will you give him the glory that he deserves, just like Daniel and the others? The God of heaven, our God, is a sovereign God. He delights to reveal his glory to those who seek after it. And his glory is revealed in his mercies. Do we believe that? Do we desire after him? That's a question I leave to you this morning. Our Heavenly Father,